0: Good morning and welcome to Cocoa Pods podcast, a podcast of the birth center for the Natural Deliveries Foundation. For our listeners, we're talking to Dr. Tiffany Powell-Wiley, the principal investigator of the Powell-Wiley lab. She is a U.S. obesity expert. You know, as an advocate and a physician scientist, you have spearheaded the development of community-based cardiovascular health behavior, some of which you talked about. A community-based cardiovascular health behavior intervention in the greater Washington, D.C. area, specifically addressing key social determinants of obesity. Dr. you you have made it a priority to target specific Washington DC wards where obesity and cardiovascular disease are most prevalent. You have intentionally built relationships with key leaders in the community, especially with a faith-based community in order to advocate for and help implement programs involving these populations. And you have talked some about the Powell Wiley Lab what is the principle in which your lab, the Power Wiley Lab, is grounded in? So our work
1: in my lab is really grounded in community engagement. That's the foundation for where we start. So many of the questions that we are trying to answer develop in communication with community members. So. For instance, some of our initial work was really to understand what cardiovascular health looked like in, the, in areas of Washington, D.C. that were under-resourced, again, that we knew had high rates of obesity, had high rates of cardiovascular disease, but we also knew these were areas that were had limited investment over time and were historically discriminated against. And so we worked in partnership with community members to understand what heart disease risk look like in the community, but we also wanted to understand what were tools that we could use for health behavior change. And so we got feedback on how we could potentially use mobile health technology, how we could use things like wearables, like my Apple Watch or my Fitbit, but also apps on your phone, how those could be used within the community. And we got a sense that heart disease was very important to focus on but also that health behaviors were really important for the community and especially they wanted to see what could be done around physical activity and diet and nutrition within the community and so that's been a lot of where we focused our the interventions that we've been developing are on those areas for community members and we've really continue to try to expand the reach of our partnerships and not just work within the faith-based community, but work with advocacy programs within DC, work with other academic organizations within DC who are doing similar work so that we can leverage things that are already happening and synergize across the, the groups. And we're now at a point where you can see how different projects are working collaboratively that, for instance, we've worked for some time, as I said, in looking at health behaviors in DC, but we've been working recently with a group at American University who've been working specifically on building capacity for health behavior interventions in churches in DC. And so those partnerships have helped us in kind of figuring out, okay, if that group is doing that type of work, How can these pieces fit together for future interventions? And so we're working with that group at American University to see how we can build sustainability and bring some of their project members into our community advisory board so they can contribute to studies that are being reviewed by the advisory board. But think about how some of that can help for use in the churches that they're working in.
0: Thank you. You know, one size fits all public health approaches to the obesity pandemic has not proven effective. How can we take a multidisciplinary approach, like some of the things you are doing with the American University, to better understanding socioeconomic, psychosocial, and environmental factors that impact obesity and other markers of cardiovascular risk help develop interventions to improve cardiovascular health that are tailored to community-based environments? So
1: again, I think part of it is engaging community members, but also part of it is being open to working with other scientists, other even policymakers, others who are really focused on, in this case, improving cardiovascular health and reducing obesity from different angles and so there has to be this understanding that there's no one person or one group that has all of the expertise that's needed and and so for my work i work with social scientists i work with behavioral scientists i work with clinicians like me i work with bench-based scientists because we're all trying to kind of think about these issues from a different angle and they're very complementary to each other. So for instance in the interventions that we do we're looking at a lot of the social factors that can affect how people do physical activity or how they what their eating behaviors are but we're also looking at if they change their levels of physical activity how does that relate to the biomarkers that we know are related to cardiovascular disease. How does that in affect inflammatory markers or inflammatory pathways? And then we bring uh, community members in to say, well, how would you change these interventions? And we look from a social science or even a more public health standpoint to say, what are some of the environmental things that might need to change in future interventions that make it less of a barrier for individuals to be a part of? this work and and engage in physical activity in their lives. And so when we bring all of those pieces in, it's multidisciplinary, but it's really looking at one problem in many different ways and answering many questions at the same time. And it it allows, I think, a bit more efficiency in, in kind of thinking through the problems, but it really allows for there to be, really, it's more of a novel way of kind of addressing these very complicated, very difficult problems, as we as clinicians are having a tough time solving like the obesity epidemic. Yeah,
0: thank you. Thank you. We're just going to discuss just a few of your published papers. You are well published. Mm -hmm. And for the layperson out there, that basically means that you have studied this issues long enough that you can write authoritative literature on them. So we're just going to go through some of your published papers and please explain to us in very layman terms what this research has produced. And the very first one was I wanted to talk about was what you published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2012, in which you talked about the hidden fat that is excess visceral fat, that is fat that is stored deep inside the belly, wrapped around the organs, including the liver and the intestines, and how the body reacts to insulin, that is in insulin resistance, but not general adiposity, Were associated with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes in obese adults. Can you just briefly explain to us the summary of that research? Sure. So
1: the biggest impact of that work really showed that there is difference in the clinical effects of the different types of fat that we have in our body. So it was one of the initial papers to really highlight that visceral fat, the fat, again, around your organs, that's around your waist, that is... Put you at higher risk of developing having prediabetes, but also of developing diabetes. And so again, it really highlights the role of these inflammatory markers that are produced by different types of fat, especially the visceral fat around the
0: organs. And in another journal called Circulation in 2021, you recognize that obesity is a heterogeneous condition in which different people with the same body mass index might have distinct metabolic and cardiovascular risk profiles. And thus the susceptibility to obesity-related cardiovascular complications is not mediated solely by your overall body mass, but depends largely on individual differences in where the fat is distributed in your body. Can you tell us about the results of this research also? Sure. The
1: study you're referring to was more of a culmination of different studies. It was a summary of different studies that highlighted the relationship between obesity and cardiovascular disease. And this was written in conjunction with other members of the American Heart Association. And it highlighted all of the work that had happened from 2006 until more recently, until 2020s. We're seeing again that all body fat is not the same, that in particular body fat around the waist, visceral fat, fat around the organs, but also fat around the heart are more concerning and put people at greater risk for cardiovascular disease. And so it really highlighted, again, the heterogeneity. All of these studies have highlighted the heterogeneity of obesity and, and the effects of different types of fat on the body. So all essentially what has become clear over the past 15 years or so is that all body fat is not the same. And so now the question is, how do we develop interventions that really target on um, these specific adipose tissue or fat tissue depots.
0: So one of your the other articles that you published with other authors was in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in 2011. And you kind of talked about the impact of extreme obesity when the body mass index is more than 40 with basically a heart attack in layman's terms. Can you explain that study to us, please?
1: Sure. There has been a lot of different interests in thinking about what do outcomes, what happens to patients with obesity once they have a heart attack or different cardiovascular disease issues. And so this was one study that where we looked at patients across different levels of obesity, and we looked at what did outcomes look like for those who had a heart attack, as you said. And so we saw that those who had the highest body mass index, what we call class three obesity, or we termed it in the paper extreme obesity, those patients who had a body mass index at or above 40, they were at highest risk for poor outcomes after a heart attack. And so there has been some data to suggest that obesity does put you at higher risk for developing Heart disease and other cardiovascular problems. But there's been data to suggest that once you have heart disease with obesity and have a heart attack or an event, a cardiovascular event, you may actually be at lower risk of dying from that event. Our study really showed that, again, it depends on the level of adiposity and, and what your body mass index is as far as what the outcomes may be. And so those who were, again, with that body mass index at 40 or above, they were at highest risk for poor outcomes and highest risk of essentially dying after a heart attack.
0: And then, you know, you've published several papers. This is just the fourth. I'm just sampling four of your papers. <laughs> in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2013, there was a comparison of four established DASH diet. And basically, you know, the DASH diet is a diet that is rich in vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. It includes fat-free or low dairy products, fish, poultry, beans, and nuts. And from the study, the DASH diet indices, you examine the relationship between this cause of this DASH diet and colon cancer. And... The overall consistency in findings suggests that the main underlying construct of the DASH dietary pattern is captured by each index and greater compliance with this dietary pattern can actually reduce one's risk of colon cancer. And I think this really highlights that obesity
1: doesn't just put you at higher risk for heart disease, it really puts you at higher risk for other diseases, particularly cancer and again it relates in many ways to that inflammation that that obesity promotes and so. This was work that I did with colleagues from the National Cancer Institute when I was affiliated with the National Cancer Institute. It was really led by those colleagues, but it showed that the DASH diet, which we as cardiologists really promote and use to reduce cardiovascular risk, can also lead to a lower risk of colorectal cancer and really highlights the importance of thinking of the DASH diet as a very critical dietary pattern, one that we should promote to patients, again, not just for reducing their heart disease risk, but also reducing their cancer risk.
0: And so that DASH diet, again, do you just want to tell us the things in a DASH diet? So again, it's
1: really thinking about reducing sodium intake in the DASH diet, but also moving away from all types of carbohydrates and meats and fats, but really thinking about lean meats, healthy fats, nuts, healthy proteins with beans and and legumes, and moving more towards a plant-based diet where you really have the focus on foods that provide a high amount of fiber, a high amount of nutrients, lots of varying colors of fruits and vegetables, really bringing a lot of those foods into your diet. Those types of eating patterns really fit within the DASH dietary pattern. But the DASH diet was designed in a way to reduce sodium intake, reduce the risk for hypertension.
0: Thank you. You know, on top of rising rates of obesity in adults, we also see it happening in children, which is very disheartening when you consider that many of them will develop corresponding chronic health problems at younger and younger ages. So maternal obesity, that is the pregnant woman being obese, maternal obesity has been shown to have significant short and long-term consequences for both mother and child. And it's now clear that timely lifestyle interventions introduced before becoming pregnant and maintained throughout pregnancy may help mitigate complications in both how is it dr paul wiley that by improving the intrauterine nutritional milieu you know the circumstances surrounding the developing fetus how is it that improving this may be possible to improve the child's general health and thereby reduce the risk in later life of health problems associated with obesity, including problems with the cardiovascular system, with the respiratory system, and nowadays with mental health. Well, because
1: the interuterine de- environment is really defining how a fetus, how a developing fetus builds all of their organs, it really defines how their brain develops, how their cardiovascular system develops, how muscle and and everything develops, we certainly know that what a mother is eating plays a direct role in how the fetus develops. The other big thing about pregnancy as a time of intervention is it really is a time where mothers may be more likely to change their behaviors because they are really interested in not only impacting themselves, but for maybe for more importantly for them, impacting the health of their baby. And so anything that can happen that can change dietary patterns so that you minimize weight gain during pregnancy, especially if a mom starts off having obesity when they get pregnant or getting a mom to engage in physical activity during that time again, with the hopes that if they can develop some habits during pregnancy, those habits can continue after pregnancy. All of that can have an important effect on the developing fetus and and child and ultimately have an impact as the child is born and and develops over time. What happens in in the womb is as important as what's happening once the child is born.
0: You know, we talked about obesity being linked to colon cancer. Another of the profound effects of obesity specific to women is an increase in the incidence of gynecologic cancers as the body mass index increases. And this has been looked at in several studies, including the one by Bas Karan and his colleagues in 2014. Please, can you expatiate on this for us? So we
1: know that obesity puts women at higher risk of gynecologic cancers, especially uterine cancer. There's a very strong link between having obesity and risk of developing uterine cancer over time. And so it, again, points to one more area where risk for disease is affected by obesity. It's the same with cardiovascular disease. It's the same with other types of cancer, not just gynecologic cancers, but even colon cancer and breast cancer as well. But even thinking about Alzheimer's as a disease, obesity can put you at higher risk for developing Alzheimer's and other neurologic diseases. And so it really highlights why it's so critical that we address what is happening with the rates of obesity, but also really figure out, again, we may not be able to get everybody to a body mass index that's 25 or below, but how do we incorporate the lifestyle changes that are needed to maybe help in reducing visceral fat, visceral adiposity, and how can we work in identifying those who are at highest risk based on having obesity? for these diseases over time and and develop interventions for
0: them? You know, any public health intervention that addresses this emerging public health issue, and particularly those measures aimed at education and prevention, the obstetrician, people like me were well-placed in the health service structure to contribute. All providers of maternity care and women's health services should have some advice available just like you have said for all women and particularly those planning pregnancy you talked about this already some more but i want us to talk about this again and again what lifestyle advice particularly on dietary habits physical activity should be given particularly to all overweight and obese women How do we stress the importance of these issues for the health of the next generation, you know, with particular emphasis so that they understand the risks associated with this condition of obesity?
1: Yeah, no, I think I totally agree that all physicians, but especially obstetrician, gynecologists have a huge role to play in reducing obesity and addressing all of the risks related to obesity. But more importantly, it's not, again, it's not just about weight loss and getting to a specific weight. It's really about incorporating the lifestyle changes and making lifestyle choices that are healthy, making those habits for helping women make those habits. And so we as cardiologists, we're really seeing patients at the time when they may have already had a heart attack or they may have already had a stroke. And so we're kind of, we're trying to play catch up, but really obstetrician gynecologists are at the front line, really seeing women who are healthy, who may not consider their body mass index as an issue, even if they don't have any other risk factors associated with it. And so it really is the time where you can, especially if women are interested in getting pregnant, it's a time where you can really emphasize how to, eat more healthy, how to think about adhering to the DASH dietary pattern, how to incorporate more fruits and vegetables into your diet, how to think about how do you make a plate that's half fruits and vegetables? How do you bring more colorful fruits and vegetables into your diet? How do you limit your meat intake? Or how do you limit your intake of carbohydrates and starches that aren't as healthy? Those are things that obstetricians can really start to talk to patients about before we as cardiologists will ever see them and then you know we can talk think about how do you encourage women to get more active to think about getting that 30 minutes of physical activity every day and it doesn't have to be you know going to a gym or doing a strenuous workout it can be walking if if you're not already walking each day or getting even, you know, 7,000 steps per day. Can you you know, try to get that, those 7,000 steps a day? Can you use your phone to watch how many steps you're getting? Just to monitor where things are and try to build those healthy lifestyle changes in, especially before you, have, you get pregnant or, or have your baby. So they, again, become habits for you and not just things that you think about once you have other diseases that have developed.